Today, we continue our series in the book of 1 Peter entitled Rumors of Hope. During a pandemic, people traffic in rumors, infection rumors, treatment rumors, symptoms rumors, economic rumors, vaccine rumors. The truth is that until something is a proven fact, it's a rumor. And in that sense, faith is a rumor. It's a rumor of hope. But the truth behind this rumor is vital to shape our lives to the contours of the really real, the Lord Jesus Christ. Throughout this book, the Apostle Peter whispers rumors about grace and peace, about being chosen by God, of sincere love, rumors of a clear conscience, and suffering that has meaning, all through a personal relationship with Christ. May we believe and receive Peter's rumors of hope. Now today is the second Sunday in May, so this must be Mother's Day. (laughs) And in the monotony of sheltering in place, as Monday becomes Wednesday becomes Sunday, reminders are helpful. So here's yours. Today is May 10th, Mother's Day 2020. Mother's Day is one of those hallmark holidays, but it provides a reminder to appreciate the unique contribution mothers make or have made in our lives. Parenting is even more difficult and crucial during a pandemic. With all the additional stress and strain of the uncertain situation we find ourselves in, And so maybe the most significant way a mother can reflect God's love to their children is by not giving up on them. No matter how slow the growth, no matter how many times they do or don't do that thing, godly mothers never give up and never give in. In Luke chapter 13, Jesus told a parable about not giving up. Beginning in verse 6, It says, then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now, I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? So the implication was that An unfruitful tree is a waste of space, so get rid of it and make way for a new shoot that will produce. In Luke 13, 8, it says, Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year, and I'll dig around it, and I'll fertilize it. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, well, then cut it down. So instead of giving up and cutting it down, the caretaker says, hold on. Not so fast. Let's give this a bit more time. Let's add some manure and see if it's alive. Jesus was fond of images like this. Things that are tiny, invisible, quiet and slow, like yeast working through the dough, uh, or salt lifting flavor, or a tiny seed rising into a huge plant. Manure does quiet work. It's the stuff of life, microorganisms, enzymes, minerals, nutrients, energy sources. It's the stuff of resurrection. And shaping the heart of a child isn't a quick fix. It's a lifetime endeavor that requires frequent fertilization 
endless investments, and often without perceptible payoffs. But Jesus says, don't give up. Shovel some manure. Give it some time. Don't look for results yet. Don't be in a hurry. God, the creator of all life, physical, emotional, and spiritual, knows that growth is imperceptible, but real. And God isn't in a hurry, and neither should we be, with our gardens, our kids, or our growth into the image of Jesus Christ. The spiritual growth doesn't come in leaps and bounds. It's slow work, indiscernible and unremarkable, but significant all the same. Now, there's no quick fix, but there is one all-important precondition for growth, and that's life. As Proverbs says, a live dog is better than a dead lion. As long as there's life, there's hope, hope of growth, hope of change, hope of meaning, and hope of joy. And so are you alive? Do you have a living hope? Have you agreed with God about your sin and need for a savior and turned your life over to Jesus Christ? In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, and the new is here. If a plant is dead, no amount of water, nutrients, or sunlight will bring it to life. But maybe you are a new creation in Christ, but the old you is still hanging around. Your emotions or habits or behaviors don't reflect new life in Christ. When, you look at, when we look at our lives and keep seeing the same things over and over again, we're like barren fig trees, wondering whether the caretaker will give up on us. But consider the ups and downs, the second, third, and fourth chances vital for Peter to mature into the wise, selfless, sacrificial author of this epistle. The impatient cut it down intended for the fig tree is deflected by the gardener's wise request, let it alone. The message of 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 12, is that you, in Christ, have a living hope, and now let it work and bear abundant life. And this passage provides manure for growth. Last week, we saw in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, um, that there was a focus on the three dimensions of the process of salvation. The foreknowledge of God, whereby God knows us, loves us, and chooses us. Uh, the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, applying Christ's sacrifice, making us alive. And our response, living in obedience to Jesus' way, the lifestyle of living hope. And now in 1 Peter 1, 3 through 12, Peter writes one long, massive, run-on sentence to make one simple point, and that is that the gospel is our living hope. Jesus is our living hope, guaranteed by his resurrection from the, from the dead. And for aliens and strangers in the dispersion, living in a culture counter to the kingdom of God, Peter doesn't begin by measuring their growth. Instead, Peter begins by 
laying down some manure. And first of all, we see the manure of hope. In 1 Peter 1, 3, and following it says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Hope brings faith to life. Hope salts our faith, accentuating the truth for us to experience it fully. Hope does the quiet work of resurrection, freeing us to experience what is always there and can never be taken away, our inheritance in Christ. And we need frequent fertilizations of hope to experience new birth in the midst of the deadness all around us. The coronavirus's effects are like the aftermath of a natural disaster, except the disaster is moving in slow motion. It's everywhere, and there's no end in sight. And as we move through day after day, not knowing where this will lead or when it will end, we need a rudder to guide us. And that rudder is the living hope revealed in the gospel and birthed by God's mercy. God's great mercy is revealed throughout the scriptures, beginning in the Old Testament, especially in the image of chesed, God's loyal love, his covenant faithfulness. Israel was like a fruitless fig tree, barren of the fruit of righteousness due to, the, due to a disobedience to their covenant with God. Israel not only failed to fulfill her role as a light to the nations, but became a serial spiritual adulterer, rejecting Yahweh for false gods. God had every right to cut the nation down, uh, but human unfaithfulness can never nullify God's faithfulness. He did discipline his nation, but he didn't give up on them. And when God began building a new spiritual house with Jesus, the living stone, the cornerstone, the Jews were invited. In fact, the gospel went to them first. The spiritual house has a new priesthood with Jesus as high priest and a new covenant sealed by the blood of Jesus's sacrifice. All a tribute and all a result of God's loyal love. Now this living hope is grounded in the objective reality that Jesus rose again. And Peter wrote this just 30 years after Jesus's resurrection the leaders involved in crucifying Jesus knew the significance of the resurrection, as did the Apostle Paul, who wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. futile. You're still in your sins. Well, the religious leaders at the time of Christ understood uh, the implications of resurrection, um, but no one was able to explain the empty tomb even in the hostile environment of Jerusalem, where the enemies of Jesus would have given anything to produce the corpse but couldn't. Matthew 28 revealed the chief priest's attempt to bribe the soldiers guarding the tomb. They said, you were to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. I mean, Roman soldiers would be put to death for falling asleep on a watch. And if this was true that in fact Jesus was not raised, why did Peter 
and many other followers of the way give their lives in martyrs' deaths. And so the significant, uh, significance of the resurrection, our living hope is grounded in the objective reality that Jesus rose again. And in verse 4, it promises that this living hope grounded in the resurrection of Jesus Christ that will never perish, spoil, or fade is indestructible. It's incorruptible. It's an unfading inheritance that is reserved in heaven for you. The good news Peter shares with his friends as they faced persecution was that their living hope rests on a living Lord, anchored in the past, Jesus rose, and constant in the present, Jesus lives. Their inheritance in Christ is secure because they're shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. This living hope, invisible, quiet, and slow, works its way into our souls, animates our faith, and produces the fruit of righteousness. But Peter isn't done. He's got some more manure to spread. Next, we see the manure of suffering. As we enter a third month of sheltering in place, the 1993 comedy Groundhog Day starring Bill Murray, it takes on new relevance. Phil Connors, a Pittsburgh-based weatherman, is assigned for the fourth year in a row to report on the Groundhog Day Festival in Puxatawney. Now, Phil is arrogant and indignant about the assignment. He mocks the festivities, belittles the town folk, and makes it clear that all this silliness is beneath him. Declaring himself the talent, he makes things difficult for his producer, Rita, and cameraman, Larry. He can't wait to get back to Pittsburgh, but a blizzard blows in, and they have to spend another night in Poxitani. And when Phil awakens the next morning, he realizes that it's February 2nd again. He's doomed to repeat this day, caught in a loop of unknown origin uh, or duration. And initially, he, experience, uh, he experiments with uh, cons- consequence-free living. He just does what he wants. He insults people. Uh, he uses his compounding knowledge to manipulate people. Uh, eventually... Uh, He tries to kill himself in a variety of ways. But then there's a redemptive arc. Phil's selfishness and sarcasm transforms into selflessness and joy, which finally releases him from the loop. And by the end of the film, Phil Connors is a changed man. His story helps us understand the impact that all kinds of trials, even the redundancy of life during a pandemic, can have on our faith and character. How should we respond to the suffering brought on uh, by the COVID-19 pandemic? Stuck in our personal version of Groundhog Day, can we see how suffering can fertilize our faith? This thing is changing all of us. Who will you become? Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. It says, in this, the salvation we have, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, 
may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with inexpressible uh, and glorious joy. Uh, For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I like James, um, who wrote an earlier epistle than 1 Peter. Peter sees suffering as cause for joy. Going back to James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, it says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Now, Peter wasn't commanding his readers to rejoice. He was describing the way they were already responding. And this wasn't superficial hilarity or denial of the reality of pain and suffering. Um, Instead, Peter described the deep sense of gladness uh, that God was at work in their lives. And there are times when joy is simply a realization that God is present uh, to you in the midst of suffering. He's there with us. Uh, The manure of suffering, it forces faith to deepen, it forces it to grow and to produce, or our faith dies. Now, Peter reveals why Christians have a right to joy even in the midst of suffering. He says, first of all, compared to our eternal inheritance, trials just last a little while. They won't necessarily, uh, that won't necessarily make suffering grief any easier, um, but there is relief that it won't last forever. Uh, The life of faith necessarily moves us uh, beyond this life. Also, Peter's readers rejoiced because their most valuable possession, faith in Christ as their living hope, was being proven genuine and would one day be revealed. When faith is exercised in the midst of a trial, uh, a present salvation is experienced that points toward our ultimate salvation. Uh, When our faith is proved genuine, when in the midst of trial we love him and believe him, even though we can't see or touch him, we experience the inexpressible joy connected to salvation. And this suffering born in faith, it changes the world. Now, there is a way of escape when we encounter various trials, but that way of escape is in fact enduring through the trial. In 1 Corinthians 10, 13, it says, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. So the way of escape is endurance. God's promise is that he never abandons us to suffering on our own. But yet he stays with us through the trial. Remember the story in the book of Daniel back in the Old Testament about his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these young Jewish men living in exile in Babylon? King Nebuchadnezzar made an image and demanded everyone to bow when the band played. Sort of a Mesopotamian version of reverse musical chairs, except that the loser got thrown into a furnace. When the music started, they refused to bow uh, and were taken before the king. 
Nebuchadnezzar was so angry, he ordered the furnace stoked extra hot, so hot, in fact, that the men who threw them in didn't survive the detail. But inside the furnace, Nebuchadnezzar saw that the three young men were calmly chatting with a fourth person. Daniel 3.25, it says, look, uh, I see four men walking around in the fire, Nebuchadnezzar said, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Now, we're not sure of the identity of the fourth person, uh, but whether it was an angel or a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ, an appearance of him before he took on human flesh, God made his point. No one suffers alone. When we're thrown into the furnace of all kinds of trials, we find that Jesus is there. And he is the pivotal piece in the puzzle of our suffering. And if you put him in his place, the rest makes sense. Christians who love Christ rejoice because they're attaining the end point of their faith, um, which is the salvation of your souls. They're, they're uh, attaining it because they're experiencing it. And while we are being saved each day in the midst of frequent fertilizations through all kinds of suffering, we experience inexpressible joy. And that is the living hope found in the gospel. And so while everyone is suffering in some way through the COVID-19 pandemic, how are you doing it? Are you getting better or bitter? Is our Groundhog Day revealing the genuineness of your faith or the thinness of your commitment? Will you suffer in a way that reveals your living hope? And Peter closes by opening one more bag of manure. And this bag is the manure of fulfillment. Looking at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10 and following. It says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. And it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. And when they spoke the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, even angels long to look into these things. Now, Peter finishes his prayer of thanksgiving with a reminder to appreciate the moment we're in. And people of faith are people of memory because memory provides perspective. And just as suffering and hope work their way forward to, to prove and strengthen our faith, the remembrance of fulfillment comes from the other direction to do the same. By God's grace, we're in this era of salvation in Christ. And the focus of the ancient prophets was the grace that these Christians possess in Christ. Uh, they searched intently and with the greatest care, the spirit of Christ in them prompting their inquiry. And like John the Baptist, they, they played a preliminary role in the plan of God. They were preparing the world and God's people for, for a later time. And that later time is now. Like wedding attendees stealing a glimpse of the bride, the prophets searched longingly to see 
what we experience now. Now, the prophets wrote about the gospel without a clear picture of God's plan. They didn't have a sense of how the whole thing fit together. And various prophets contributed to this, and surely Isaiah was one of those prophets. His writings revealed that the Messiah would have a forerunner, turned out to be John the Baptist, a ministry in Galilee, a healer of the, he would be a healer of the brokenhearted, he'd be rejected by his own, um, who would be silent as he was spat upon and struck, not answering the accusations, eventually crucified as a sacrifice and buried uh, with, with the wealthy, with the rich. That was all from Isaiah. And certainly Zechariah, Uh, was in Peter's mind as he wrote this. Zechariah prophesied that the Messiah would have a triumphal entry, be sold for 30 pieces of silver, and have his hands inside pierced as he sacrificed himself. Also, various psalmists wrote of Jesus' betrayal, of, of being an object of hatred to those he loved, of being scorned and mocked, offered vinegar and gall as he prayed for his enemies while soldiers gambled for his garment, ultimately rising from the dead and ascending to heaven. They got a glimpse, but Jesus had to come to fill in the story. As God's servants, they humbly accepted that they were not serving themselves. In fact, they could not have fully understood much of what they wrote. And even the angels wanted to take a peek into this salvation declared by the prophets, revealed by the Spirit, and available for all who believe. Well, we live in this fulfillment. We're blessed that the perfect has come, that God connected all the salvation dots begun in the Old Testament in the life and ministry of of his son, the Lord Jesus. And Peter says, let that sink in. Let gratitude for this moment do its quiet work. A living hope is the energizing principle of the new life. And hearts shaped by a living hope require frequent fertilizations of hope and suffering and fulfillment. May we be overjoyed by the salvation we've received and finish well. Finally, there's a script to life that... Most of us have internalized, whether consciously or not. Uh, It's reflected in many of our most loved stories. It's often called the hero's journey. Uh, Great adventure stories throughout history, from the story of King David to Star Wars, reflect the basic formula in three parts. First, there's the challenge, the call to adventure. Uh, where the hero-to-be is stimulated to act in some bold way, usually to meet uh, a daunting task, say, fighting Goliath or the empire. Second is the ordeal, in which the hero is brutally tested and has to beat long odds, such as vanquishing a giant in battle or blowing up the Death Star. Now, the third is victory, where the hero wins and returns home triumphant. All great stories have a similar pattern. Hopes, struggles, sacrifice, fulfillment. God calls us to place our story in his great story. 
by embracing our living hope with faith, accepting that challenge, and then being tested through struggle and sacrifice, but ultimately victorious. By challenging, by accepting the challenges of faith, we enjoy the fulfillment of a great victory won, not by us, but by our hero, the Lord Jesus Christ. When we walk in his footsteps, and according to the contours of our faith in him, may our living hope of salvation in Jesus Christ now and into eternity be our story. Let that sink in.